1: defend and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable.
0: Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic, helping you to understand, defend and share your faith with confidence. I'm with Jackson. And before we hear from today's guest, I just want to remind you to head over to our website, premierunbelievable.com to find more shows articles and resources and if you register or sign up for our newsletter there you can get yourself a free ebook or maybe even two or three because there's loads on there but now for today's show I am super excited to be joined by Alonzo Paul from the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics. Alonzo, I nearly said your name wrong again there. It's spelled Alonzo, but you pronounce it Alonzo, right?
1: <laughs> that's right, that's right. You did a good job.
0: Brilliant, well, thank you so much for joining us, Alonzo. Thanks for having me, Ruth. This is very exciting. So Alonzo, I wanna go right back to the very beginning. Did you grow up in a Christian home? Sort of what is your experience? Cause you grew up in Canada, didn't you?
1: Yeah. So both my wife and I Mm -hmm. are born and raised Canadian. And did I grow up Christian?
0: Kind of.
1: So I grew up nominally Catholic. Okay. So we went to church on Easter and Christmas, uh, but I didn't really understand jesus or the resurrection or christian hope it was more like fire insurance than anything else like (laughs) just in case there was a big guy in the sky like judgment day would be a little bit easier since we put in some time okay so that was that was it growing up
0: okay and like give us a little bit of a potted history of alonzo from let's say sort of five years old till maybe not the present day, but just give us like a little bit of a taster of what was your childhood, your teenage years, maybe into kind of young adulthood. What did that look like?
1: Yeah, so childhood was great. You know, we did things that normal families in Canada would do. You know, you're going ice skating because sometimes you get up to minus 40. I don't know if what? you know what minus 40 is like, Ruth, but I mean that sounds even, cold. Jesus, <laughs> even Jesus don't want to come out of minus 40. You know what I mean? It's it's, it's cold. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so we did those sorts of things. And then uh, my parents, when I was 12, got divorced, and it was kind of a rough divorce. And so that's when our nominal Catholicism ceased. Mm -hmm. And that's when I began to look for, even though I didn't have this language, began looking for coping mechanisms in order to find equilibrium again. So that was the beginning of me getting into drugs and cigarettes and alcohol and partying. And then that led me down a road of becoming a full-blown opiates addict uh, by the time I was in my late teens, early twenties. And so that was a beginning. There's a, it's a long story. <laughs> I don't know how much detail you want I mean, me to go us, into. Just give but us that's... a little
0: bit of it. Obviously, we've, you know, we've not got hours. I mean, we have because it's a podcast. We can speak as, as long as we want, but potentially <laughs> we're not going to keep people's attention for hours. But give us a bit of a potted history of, you know, you say the divorce was kind of the, the trigger point, but obviously there, there was other things I would imagine that. Yeah. That
1: sort of so like any young person, you find your equilibrium with your friend group, or in my case, I found it with friend group, but it was the wrong friend group. Mm -hmm. It was a friend group that was doing drugs and going out and partying and that sort of stuff. And I just got sucked into that world. So I didn't do very well in school. And, um, I just really had bad relationships with my parents and my sister and all that sort of thing. Um, I think things really began to escalate when I became the opiate addict. So this was after a night of, going out and partying, a friend gave me a pill to make me feel better. And it did. I just didn't know the cost of being addicted to, to that. And so, um, I went down this life of really a dark path. And so the culmination of this dark path was, um, this one night I'm going out to a reggae party night and this is in Calgary and I'm going out with a friend of mine and, you know, we're doing like the regular thing that you would do out there. Um, you know, we're doing cocaine, we're doing drugs, we're drinking and all that sort of thing. And then we go back to his flat for, you know, at the end of the night, it's like 4am. And, uh, what happened was this guy had a drug induced schizophrenic episode. I don't know if you know what that is, but he started hearing voices as a result of the volume of drugs that we took. And so what he tried to do was murder me in my sleep. And so he took this blade and the voices said, chop off Alonso's head. And so he proceeded to try. So he hit me once in the back of the head. I woke up, as you might, uh, when, when that happens. And then he swung again, caught me in the hand, I was able to escape and found my way to a hospital. And after the police had uh, questioned me, they, um you know, they, they, obviously, we're allowing you to get my medical attention. And I got hit so hard in the back of the head that I bled internally in my brain for three days. Oh my and so I had this moment where I got to reflect deeply on where have I come from? Mm. And where do I need to go? And in a sense, that was a real grace from God to stop me, because I was already had a number of times where I came close to ODing. And this was that real wake up of, I need to rethink what I'm doing with my life. And then it was shortly after then that I got invited to church. And I was invited by my sister. And uh, she says to me, you know, um, Alonzo, you should come. You'll leave feeling good. And I'm like, yo, bun that. Like, there's no way I want to go to this church. Uh, It's kind of like Nikki Gumbel says, um, or maybe it's What's So Amazing About Grace by uh, Philip Yancey he says, you know, why would I go around those Christians? They would only make me feel worse. Mm. And I had that same sort of response to an invitation. But my sister, you know, being awesome, she just cajoled me into coming. And uh, that's Let's, when I heard... Oh, sorry. sorry can sorry, we just ahead, pause that ahead. just
0: for a second? Because I just want to rewind slightly. So your sister, had she did she sort of keep her nominal, nominal Catholic faith and faith that kind of grow into something bigger? Or had she had a kind of later conversion after your parents' divorce yeah. and everything?
1: So this is good. Sorry. I, I jumped over a couple of bits. That's um, okay. But the, what happened was she had gotten out of a bad situation herself. It mm-hmm. wasn't the same as mine, but it was a bad one nevertheless. And then she got invited to go to this church and it was some non denominational church. And, um, and it was actually out of a, a movie theater and she just changed Ruth. Okay. Like that's the only language I had even back then of, I know my sister was miserable. I know she was hurting. I know she felt a whole slew of really dark emotions, but I saw the positive change mm-hmm. in her life. And so I think it was only, how do I explain this? The, the joy that she was radiating was so alluring that even the smallest possibility of me getting some of that was enticing enough to actually get me in the doors, even though I was scared of being judged. Okay. And so I was like, okay, fine. And so I went. And then that's when I heard about Jesus of Nazareth. And I had never, Ruth, I felt like I had been lied to my entire life. I felt like nobody told me, who the true Jesus actually was, who loved the prostitute and the tax collector and was there for the oppressed and the marginalized and was strong and looked evil in the face and yet was so gentle and compassionate and loving. And so it was a result of that exposition of the gospels that um, that I gave my life to Jesus. I just like cried every Sunday for mm-hmm. like three months that I got invited. I would go and it was just like, He was talking straight to me and I couldn't hold back the tears and uh, I was looked really rough around the edges. So it must've been a sight to see this like really rough dude, just like weeping in the corner of this church. But that's like, the Holy Spirit was doing something deep.
0: Was it a kind of culmination of of all of those different services and, and various things that was going on for you? Or was there a kind of definitive point where it was like, before I wasn't a Christian, now I am? Or was it kind of a gradual journey?
1: Yeah, so it wasn't a question of those experiences, having some conversations. But my entry into the Christian worldview wasn't an intellectual one, Ruth. Mm-hmm. I felt that I had a deep existential need. And what I seen in Jesus Christ was that hope that I could latch onto. It was that savior that I could embrace. So when you had stories like the woman caught in adultery, let's say in John chapter eight, and he says, "Neither uh, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. I seen a real possibility that the source of love in the universe could possibly love me, even though I had made a mess of my life. And there was one biblical character after the, the next that also was emblematic mm-hmm. of this radical, relentless love from Jesus. And so I remember thinking to myself, if it's possible that they could be loved, then maybe it's possible that I could be loved too. And I felt so much shame. So the prospect of, of real love, genuine love, which is so enticing.
0: So, that was the kind of heart response. But obviously, you work in apologetics now, which is not purely head for sure. Yeah. You know, we definitely need to bring in the heart and the head. But there is yeah. a lot of kind of head knowledge there, isn't there? And trying to help people to sort of break down some of those barriers between, um, you know, yeah. for reason, objections to the Christian faith and things like that. So, how did you get into apologetics? What was the kind of move from the heart to the head, would you say?
1: Okay. So Ruth, when I got saved, when I gave my life to Jesus, I just had this deep hunger to learn more, this deep sense of curiosity. I felt like I was really behind. So I'm like 21 years old. I've done nothing with my life except for these various bad things. And so I felt like Christians, this is probably not a good headspace to have, but I felt like Christians were like way up here they know their Bibles backwards and forwards and they know all of these, I don't know, reasons for why they believe what they believe. And I need to catch up. So I had this intense hunger just to study God's word. And it was through the study of God's word that I found this thing called apologetics, which most people in my church like did not even know what that word meant. Mm-hmm. So I was like really surprised that I stumbled on this like prima facie new thing. Um <laughs> With, with apologetics and I just loved it. I just loved that there was an intellectual world behind this existential reality that I was feeling and experiencing. It was so fascinating.
0: So it wasn't that you were sort of discovering new things. It was more that it was sort of confirming in your head what you were already feeling and experiencing in your heart, would you say?
1: Yeah, yeah. Experientially on that mm-hmm. sort of level of knowing in my sort of economy of thinking, it felt true. And when I started to explore apologetics, I discovered that there are logical, rational, historical, scientific reasons for why people also affirm its veracity. And so I found that just absolutely stimulating. Because yeah, last thing you want to do is believe something that's false, even Mm. if it's like, really helpful. And so that was really just exciting for me. It opened up a whole new world of exploration and really helped me find out who God had crafted me to be and the destiny that he had in store for me. And so the prospect of also discovering identity in it was really exciting.
0: And was there a particular argument or area of apologetics that particularly appealed to you?
1: Oh my gosh. Um, back then or now?
0: Oh, let's go for both then and now. Why not?
1: (laughs) (laughs) So back then I just loved, um, I loved things like fine tuning of the universe, Mm -hmm. looking at the fundamental constants of the universe, how they're so finely tuned that if they were adjusted even a little bit, the universe wouldn't have intelligent life. I loved uh, the beginning of the universe, you know, the Kalam cosmological argument, that sort of thing. And so these really like big ethereal, sort of bare bones theism arguments were really appealing to me. But I think what really sunk it down deeper were things like the historical Jesus and the trustworthiness of, of the Bible, that the world, people, and places that populate the pages of the New Testament were historically verifiable and you could um, take the facts that are in history and correspond them with what we see in the new testament and they're astonishingly accurate and so i find that stuff really cool plus i just like studying jesus i just still think he's the most awesome person ever and so those were the beginning and that's more where um well where am i at now let's let's say that so now, Ruth, I'm really into things like analytic philosophy and analytic theology. And so, just in case somebody's unaware of what those things are, um, the analytic tradition within philosophy, in the Western philosophy, really looks to drill down into concepts and words to try to elucidate. Um, it tries to clarify, make very clear. What we mean when we use certain words and when we're saying certain ideas. So, for example, when we're talking about the person of God or the doctrine of God, what exactly do we mean by that? And how would it be distinct from, say, um, a model of God in another worldview? Mm-hmm. And so I'm like really interested in that because that like funnels into everything that we talk about in apologetics and yeah. in our witnessing and evangelism.
0: I guess as well, it means that you're not talking at cross purposes to people, are you? Because if you're talking about something and meaning something and, and someone else is listening, but thinking something else when you say that, actually yeah. y- clarifying the terms is quite helpful in that respect.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what they do. So I'm really excited about that. That's what I did my master's in is analytic theology at the University of Toronto. Um, so, yeah, I was excited about that. Looked at Thomas Aquinas. If there's any Thomas out there, how at your boy. <laughs>
0: Alonzo, am I right in thinking that Ravi Zacharias played a part in either your conversion or your kind of getting into apologetics?
1: Yeah, so he definitely did. So when I was first walking with Jesus and first coming across apologetics, I came across people like William Lane Craig, for example, um, Fred Turek, for example, Um And and eventually I came across Rabbi Zacharias and Lee Strobel, actually. Case for Christ was was like really powerful in in my story. And so Rabbi Zacharias, I found quite appealing. You know, same skin color as me and spoke with such a beautiful, he had such a beautiful way of speaking. And I didn't know, again, that these sort of individuals existed within Christianity. Um, I had yet to discover people like Thomas Aquinas and Augustine and the whole rich Christian heritage mm-hmm. that we have. And so he was instrumental in that sense of first introducing me to apologetics with the other uh, names I just mentioned. And it was in 2015, Ravi Zacharias actually came to Calgary to do a university mission. And I had met him afterwards. And he was the one that said, suggested to me, you should check out the ACA in Oxford. and as a former drug addict that did not do well in school, Mm -hmm. I was more interested in getting high than getting high grades. Um, I just, I thought that I was an impossibility, Uh, but with God, all things are possible. So I applied and you also had to get into Wycliffe Hall at Oxford University at the same time. And by God's grace, uh, I was able to get into both programs. And so, yeah, he was instrumental in that sense. Um, And then eventually, he was the head of the organization that I worked for with ACA and with RZAM Canada.
0: So if this isn't too uncomfortable to answer, Alonzo, how how do you feel about some of that in in light of the posthumous revelations of Ravi Zacharias' sexual misconduct? Do you you sort of feel like that in any way taints your experience? Um, You know, does it it kind of, yeah, I mean, how do you feel in light of all of that? Because that must have been painful, not just from a kind of professional perspective but from a personal perspective because he had such an impact in in a personal sense as well
1: yeah yeah it was heartbreaking um it was the hardest time of ministry that my wife and i and my colleagues have ever been through um when we would walk down the hallway and rabbi was in the building he would say hey lonzo how's your wife khadija you know he um He would even ask us like personal questions. Like my wife, she runs a little e-commerce business, men's grooming thing. And he'd say, you know, like, how's the business and stuff like that. And so all of my interactions with him were very positive. Um, So it was was really not only traumatizing to go through that experience, but it began this phenomenon in me that I, I feel like I'm still working my way through which is learning to trust again. Um, We had so much trust. At least I did. I can't speak for all my colleagues. I had so much trust in him and the senior leadership team that um, that sense of betrayal, that actual betrayal uh, went down so deep. Luckily, I had good friends around me during that time, um, like Sam Albury, uh, Daniel Gilman, um, Tom Price, Max baker Heitch that were in constant communication with me and helping me guide and think through and process these, uh, Sam Albury, especially just being that pastoral figure that he is, um, helped so many of us, uh, especially the younger team going through all of this. And, um, I had other friends that helped facilitate some of these conversations like with Lorianne Thompson, uh, Mm -hmm. one of the victims of Ravi, where we all got to get together and repent and apologize for our sin that we were guilty of, of not, leaving their story. And Lorianne Thompson is a fantastic human being. She was so quick to forgive. Same thing with Steve Boffman, uh, the banjo atheist, such a lovely, lovely person uh, when you get to meet him. And it was hard. I praise God for those precious moments of repentance and forgiveness. Um, I don't yeah. I don't think I'm a hundred percent healed from mm-hmm. all of those sorts of things. Like it was hard to even just get a new church after that. Like yeah. we moved from Toronto to BC in Canada. And um, you know, one of my first questions to the pastor of the church that we were starting to attend was how on earth can I trust you? Yeah. And so it took time, but God and my accountability uh, friends and um, my brothers and sisters in Christ helped a lot of us get through that so there was lots of grace there too but a lot of hurt
0: you're listening to unapologetic from Premier unbelievable one of the questions i've had through, through this whole experience is wh- what about the people who came to faith through ravi because you must have seen some of those people perhaps been at events where people became Christians through Ravi yeah. or through his associated ministry. Yeah. I mean, obviously it doesn't take away from the fact that God clearly met with those people and changed their lives, but there must be a sense in which they feel a little bit like their conversion experience has been tainted in light of revelations. I mean, what, yeah. what do you think about that Alonzo? Yeah,
1: I think that's a fair, a fair feeling to have. And I would affirm that um, I think any minister that we come across uh, is going to be flawed mm-hmm. to some salient degree. Obviously, rabbis was exponentially more. Hopefully, any minister that is preaching the gospel or defending the gospel in some sort of meaningful way is pointing their, um, their audience not to themselves to believe in the credibility of the gospel, but to Jesus Christ himself. He's the steel man of Christianity. And it's very true that there are unsafe ministers out there. And we pray for God to bring justice and bring that justice swiftly. The thing that I think that I hold on to is that with Jesus, I'm never... Afraid that he's going to be unsafe. I'm never afraid that Jesus is going to be untrustworthy or that he will ever be not credible. Mm. And so, for those people, I would say the same thing um, that you're to look to Christ, who is trustworthy and safe, and you'll never have to have the fear that there will be a secret, ugly side to him. This is only beauty in him mm. and safety.
0: So you were in Canada, and you've fairly recently moved to the UK. What prompted that move?
1: Oh yeah, So was
0: quite a big. That's quite a big yeah, thing. <laughs>
1: it's like just it's something you do. Uh, mm-hmm. I was bored, um, you no. Know, so I just finished my masters, and we had moved to British Columbia from Toronto, and um, I was working at a church for a little while, and after I had done a year at this church. Sorry, it was less than a year. It was was like six months. Um, I was just sort of praying and thinking and seeking God of like what to do next. And that's when I got a phone call from our CEO uh, at ACA. Uh, His name is Charlie Stiles. And he said, hey, like why, um, if you're not doing anything, you should come back over here. We have lots of work to do. And uh, we prayed about it. And we're like, yeah, 100% um, the Lord's invested into us in so many beautiful ways, um, in terms of education and experience, um, that we, we need to put our hands back on the plow and keep going. Um, and so my wife and I, she's so awesome. She's so like, just like willing to go with the flow. Uh, I don't know where I'd be without her, her and the Holy Ghost, man, they, they hold me together. And so we went to Oxford. So we've been back here for about four months. And before that was three years.
0: So you have done apologetics in Canada and you're beginning to do it in the UK and you've done a little bit. Obviously, you were were here for a year before. Do you see a big difference between kind of the apologetics and evangelism sphere in Canada and in the UK? I mean, is it similar questions? Do people have similar objections? Is it a a kind of – is the cynicism the same? Are people more open over in Canada or in the UK? Like what's the – I've given you lots of things to talk about there, but you know, what's the kind of difference between Canada and here in the UK?
1: I think, um, we're very similar. Mm -hmm. So I think actually Canadians are closer culturally to England than we are to the Americans. Um, not a bad thing, just what it is. And some of the questions are different for sure. That will be specific to one particular geographic location versus Mm -hmm. the other. So for example, in Canada, there'll be questions of the Catholic church and the indigenous folks, Mm -hmm. um, because they retreated horrifically um, in some of the residential schools, um, in some of these forced conversions, forced baptisms, absolutely horrific. Uh, Whereas in England, you know, I don't get too many of those questions. So there are some, some differences, but you know, at the end of the day, I think like the big questions, the real burning questions are are virtually universal. Um, during COVID we got to do a lot of Q and A's around the globe because everything was virtual. Mm. We could do New Zealand to uh, Abu Dhabi, to India, to wherever. And, you know, things like suffering and why trust the Bible and so on were we, we encountered them every single place we, We tuned into.
0: Well, let's talk about a particular group of people for whom some people would say actually they're not even asking the question so it's not as if Canada and UK have got different questions they just don't have questions at all I'm talking of course of young people um, and yeah. certainly in my experience people would say oh but young people don't even have questions they're not even thinking about this stuff it's not that they're they've got objections to the Christian faith they're just the Christian faith is just not even on their radar at all yeah I mean what would you say to that do you think that is the case that young people are just completely apathetic to the gospel
1: it's hard to say like blanket statement Mm. you know young people are um apathetic towards to god uh, towards god or christianity or spirituality i find in my own experience of just talking to people on the ground level that there's a lot more spirituality and openness Mm. to spirituality than you might see on say social media And you hear some of these like small percentages of voices speaking very loudly. Yeah. Um, They are wrestling. Young people are wrestling sure with some apathy, you know, and there's this great book out there just came out. um, I think it was just a couple of months ago and it's called, I have it written down here. Let's see if I, if I can get to it. Um, It's uh, overcoming apathy Uh, Gospel Hope for Those Who Struggle to Care by Uche Anizor. And he's an associate professor of theology at School uh, Talbot School of Theology. And he's really great. So he he defines spiritual apathy as more than just like this temporary feeling, but this prolonged state of stuckness Mm. that everyone... So everyone goes through um, periods of feeling apathetic towards you know, God or their, their spirituality, but he's saying like, there's, there are people that are, are there for a very, very long time and that's concerning. And he gives some solutions to that. So I see some of that when I'm out there, what I see also more often than apathy is existential crisis mm-hmm. or existential wrestling Ruth. So for example, can I share a little story? So I'm sitting on the bus on my way home from the gym, and I hear, and I'm sitting at the back of the bus and there are these two 16 year old girls. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm in, I do youth ministry. I should kind of like pretend that I'm reading and just like listen, see what <laughs> like the average conversation, like hopefully it's okay. Like Jesus forgive me if that's a sin, but I'm like <laughs> in the field researching here, right? Because I want to be, I want to be an effective apologist evangelist. I, I need to know what's going on at the, grass- the grassroots level. Okay, cool. So they're talking. And in 20 minutes, the totality of their conversation is the following substance abuse, sex, being romantically followed by boys, pregnancy scare, crippling anxiety and depression, failed suicide attempt, telling off their parents and making money.
0: Hmm.
1: I found that to be one of the most accurate places accurate sort of summations of the things that are on the minds of young people. And the data corresponds with it. So if you look at the 2022 Jesus survey, the very top questions are going to be these existential questions, not your classical apologetic questions. Things like what happens after you die? Will everything be okay? Um, Is there a purpose to my life? All of these sorts of things are at the very top of these surveys of like what's on the minds of young people. And so I find there's a lot of discussion, lots of questions being asked. And I find that there, there's a ton of questions that are being asked by young people. Yeah. They're
0: just perhaps articulated in a different way than they have been traditionally.
1: Yeah, and I find with this generation, like I was just with a youth group on Friday, um, it was a whole cluster of youth groups that met together. and. These young people have a heap of questions, Mm. but it's not questions that, they're not gonna just give it to you. You gotta put in some work. You have to spend some time. There's gotta be some relational equity that's invested into them before they start opening up. And I find too, just asking them some questions Mm. to begin um, is actually something that's going to yield them asking you more questions. So for example, I, I was talking to one of these young girls and I said to you, I said to them, what exactly do you want to get out of a youth night? Like what would make it worthwhile? Because you're sacrificing a Friday night. I was 16 once. I know that that's a high cost. Mm. What do you need to get out of it? And it was interesting. The, the thing that her and her friends wanted to do is not necessarily listen to a lengthy talk, but to have discussion. Mm-hmm. And this was the whole group felt the same way after this girl first articulated it. They are hungry for discussion. They have questions. We just got to draw it out of them.
0: So do you think that kind of discussion format, uh, rather than sort of you just giving them a rote answer, do you think that's the way forward when it comes to engaging with some of these big questions that young people have?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think young people are increasingly communicating more especially in public places, on social media, for instance, and in school and amongst their friends, they just love to talk. And with so many verbal processors and all of these things that contribute to that, I think we at least need to try to give more space to having some of these discussions. Um, If one format isn't working, um, I'm of the disposition that let's try something different. Mm. um, Because it is really desperate, the cause. Uh, like we really, really need to get young people talking and thinking and getting them closer to a relationship with Jesus. So if I'm trying one thing and trying it over and over again and expecting different results, um, I'm just not sure if that's an efficacious strategy. Yeah. Uh, maybe it works in some context. And here's the thing about youth ministry too, Ruth, as you probably know, like there's not like one cookie cutter solution mm-hmm. to all of these sorts of things. You got to spend time with your young people and see what they're like and see what do they like and not like. And would they be open to this sort of thing? Or maybe they're really responsive to talks and maybe you just keep doing that. Um but if it's not working, I would suggest humbly, with all due respect, try and switching it up a little bit to mm. more group discussion.
0: So I think you're absolutely right that, um, you know, when it comes to young people who do have these questions and perhaps we need to sort of slightly tease those questions out of them. And you're absolutely right that we need to earn the respect to be able to speak into their lives. We can't certainly just rock up and expect that we can share their lives without sort of giving anything of ourselves but I guess that's that's one thing so perhaps the people that are willing to share some of their objections and questions what about the hordes and hordes of young people who would never darken the doors of a church would never consider coming to an evangelistic event an apologetics event you know we see those crazy statistics of young people leaving the church in droves or not even being there in the first place how do we reach those apathetic, for want of a better word, young people who aren't interested at all?
1: Yeah. So this is a really, really important question. So first thing, I think as the church, we need to recognize how important this demographic actually is. Mm -hmm. So again, quoting the uh, 2022 Talking Jesus survey, they recorded that England is now under 50% that identify as Christian. And they're not the only survey that's done that. There's been a heap of them recently, mm-hmm. right? It's like first time in history, less than 50%. It's like 46, 48, depend on who you read. Okay. Out of that 48%, let's say, they ask how many of those Christians um, are practicing Christians? Because some just identify it because they're not a Buddhist or something, sure. right? So they auger down and they say 6%. According to their survey, 6% of them are practicing Christians, and the bar's not super, super high. It's like you read your Bible once in a while and you like, you go to church a couple of times a month, right? It's like that sort of practicing. Cool. All right. When did they become practicing Christians is the next logical question. And so they ask that and they find out that the biggest demographic of those who are practicing Christians when they became practicing Christians is when you're born, you were just born into it, that sort of thing not surprising at all. It's about 30% of the population. Um, the next biggest demographic was 11 to 18 at 26% of practicing Christians became practicing Christians at 11 to 18 years old. That is bigger than all the demographics that come after it combined, Mm. whether it's, um, you know, 19 to 24, 25 to 34, 35 to 44, so on and so forth. Bigger than all of them. And uh, the next biggest one is uh, five to 10 that uh, become Christian. So five to 10 years old, they become practicing Christian at at that age. And it makes up for about 11 or 12%. So these are huge, huge demographics that we just need to come to terms with. The fact that whatever we're doing, we need to step our game up with Mm -hmm. reaching young people. Yeah, Whether it's writing great apologetic books for kids or for youth or coming up with great content that they can share amongst their non-christian friends, 100% we need to double down. It can't be looked at as the minor leagues that you can eventually graduate to the major leagues, which is adult ministry. Okay. Mm -hmm. So how do we reach some of these kids that would not even step into a church? From my own experience, there is something so simple and powerful about a invitation. You create a relationship with this person, not only to score and by score, I mean, get them into church and then fall in love with Jesus. Of course, we want that. But creating a genuine relationship with this person, taking a genuine interest in their lives and being a presence in their lives, especially during the hard time. I have friends that I still have not been able to get into church. They don't know, uh, they're, they're atheists. Um, And we've gotten to walk through some dark times with them, some good Mm -hmm. times with them. And we're still like working at it. So some of this takes time, but I feel like we need to invest the time into these relationships so that we can extend a meaningful, genuine invitation for them to come. And then also you're just waiting for that right time. We all care about things. And so some of my friends that would never step into a church, maybe they really care about justice. Mm -hmm. Maybe they really care about, suffering. Maybe they, they really care about some contemporary issue and that can be a launching point into a deeper conversation, um, whether it's moral argument or the existence of God, existence of Jesus and so on.
0: Well, let's talk about that invitation because you are working on an event that is the perfect place to invite young people to, right? Tell us about yes. Reboot, Alonso.
1: Oh my gosh. So Reboot, it's going to be amazing, everybody. Um, we have Professor John Lennox, tackling the existential question, why am I here? And it's one of the top questions that young people are facing today and thinking about today. So we have him as our keynote. He's going to be interviewed by my colleague, Claire Williams, who is also like a hero of mine. She's just this amazing intellect, academic, apologist, evangelist, and she's going to be interviewing him. And then all three of us are going to be uh, on a panel on a live q and R, a a live question and response, where young people can submit their questions live to us. You can grill John Lennox live. And so we're doing this on February 3rd. It's only an hour long, 7.30 to 8.30 PM GMT. And at the very end, we have an incredible prize. But you're just gonna have to be there uh, to find out what this uh, prize is but it's gonna be amazing.
0: Alonso, how do people get involved? Is there a link that people need to sign up to? Do they need to register? Can they just rock up on the day? Um, how do we let people know about so it? So it's,
1: it's super simple. So again, this is a digital event. So we have people already registered from the very top of the UK to the bottom, east west, everybody's rocking up. It's free and you can register for free and your youth group at rebootglobal.org.
0: Well, I'll make sure that all of the links to that are in the notes with today's show as well. So you don't need to remember that. But RebootGlobal.org. Well, Alonzo, just as we sort of finish this, I feel like the one question I want to ask you is what I ask so many people at the end of the show. But if you could go back to your younger self, I'm trying to think what age. Let's go for kind of early 20s, maybe 1920, just as you're kind of beginning to spiral slightly out of control Is there anything that you would go back and tell 20-year-old Alonzo in light of everything that you've learned so far in light of hearing the truth of the gospel? What would you want to say to your younger self?
1: I think I would say that following Jesus Christ will require sacrifice. There will be times when it is very, very hard. But time and time again, Jesus has proved himself worth it. He is my best friend, and he is beautiful and strong and so worth laying down your life and everything else that you think is valuable or precious. He's just so incredible. And I would tell myself that back then.
0: That's a pretty good way to end. Alonze, thank you so much for joining us today. And do make sure you check out the links for Reboot if you know any young people whatsoever or parents or youth workers or anyone who you think should be there.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Ruth. Yes, everybody, if they have a pulse, we will take them. We want your young people to hear about Jesus (laughs) and they're going to have such a fun time. Uh, I'm so looking forward to seeing you all there.
0: Well, thank you Alonzo and thank you for listening to Unapologetic with me Ruth Jackson as always you can find out more about our guests through the links with today's show please do let us know what you think of the program by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk even let us know if you think it's bad because we can't improve it if we don't know that you think it's bad it's kind of helpful if you can be specific though just because then we can improve the bits that you think are bad but thank you so much for listening and see you next week
1: Been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources, and our newsletter, visit PremierUnbelievable.com.